Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Well, it's late June and we are getting close to the make or break month for a reconciliation bill, a bill that would almost certainly include tax measures. But here's the thing. It's June 23rd, as I record this, and Congress is about to leave town, leave town for two and a half weeks for the 4th of July recess. Now, of course, staff will likely continue to work on trying to negotiate a bill, but it's possible things are going to go quiet here on this topic for a while before that last push in July. So instead, let's get to a topic we've wanted to discuss for a while, something that was part of Build Back Better, something that was part of the Biden Green Books, and it's also something we haven't even covered yet. So today we wanted to explore the topic of increased funding for the IRS. Wait, what you say? With the other high-stake developments pending, you're going to talk about IRS funding? Well, yes. First, because the question of whether and to what extent Congress should increase the IRS budget, that's a valid and important question in its own right. But furthermore, it does have potentially important implications for a tax reconciliation bill. And I want to come back to that at the end of our episode today. So to talk about this issue of IRS funding, I'm joined today by our regulars, Carol Coolish and Jennifer Gray. Okay, so with that background, let's just get into the discussion. And Carol, I'm going to ask this first question to you. Just remind us or set the table here on what are these proposals to increase IRS funding, either from the administration or from Congress? Just remind us what people are proposing. In its first budget, the administration proposed a substantial increase in IRS funding. It proposed to provide more than $79 billion, so call it $80 billion, of additional funding for the IRS over the 10-year budget window to fund improvements and expansions in enforcement and compliance activities. The proposal would direct that those additional resources going towards enforcement would be used with regard to those with the highest incomes rather than Americans with actual income of less than 400000 And they also proposed that some of the additional funding would allow the IRS to enhance its information technology capability, including the implementation of some of its proposed financial information reporting regime, and to strengthen taxpayer service. So that's basically what the administration proposal was. There's a lot there, and we're going to come back to it, especially some of the rationale here. I'm going to come back to that. But you were very particular about saying this was in the first Biden budgetary proposal. You didn't say it was in the second one. Remind us why. I didn't just because the second budget gets kind of confusing because the administration assumed that the administration's proposals for the Build Back Better Act were already enacted and then it focused on new things on top of those. Right. So since Build Back Better basically picked up the administration's proposal on funding the IRS, the 80 billion, they're assuming that's going to get enacted And therefore, they didn't have to come back to it. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, because the House bill, if you recall, the House did pass a version of Build Back Better. And the House bill proposal basically was to provide almost $80 billion in additional funding to the IRS. So it followed the administration proposal. What the House bill proposal did, it was a little more granular. It was a little more specific in how to spend those additional funds. But basically, the House bill proposal did follow what the administration had asked for, which is substantial, about $80 billion increase in additional funding to the IRS. Okay. So I think that's pretty clear. It's obvious that both the administration, the Biden administration, as well as the democratically controlled Congress feels pretty strongly 
in substantial increasing funding for the IRS. Understood. Now, Jennifer, question for you. That point of view, is that a bipartisan point of view, or do you think that Republicans might find themselves in a different position relative to IRS funding? I would say it is not a bipartisan point of view. I think the Republicans, for the most part, have a complicated relationship of view of the IRS. I think some of that might be ideological, and I think there's still remnants hanging over from eight or 10 years ago with the situation where a lot of Republicans in Congress felt that the IRS was targeting uh, conservative groups in the nonprofit area. I think also, if I'm remembering correctly, I believe the House bill also had some mention of free e-file as part of their funding specifications, and that's something else that a lot of Republicans have some concerns about. Yeah, I think that's right. On all points, you know, for people who have forgotten, if you recall, the whole Tea Party tax-exempt organization thing that happened a decade ago, really, is still lingering for many Republicans. And, you know, honestly, it even goes back further, because I recall, if you remember, during the contract with America and, the, you know, the Newt Gingrich era, even then, there was real controversy, I think, for Republicans in funding the IRS. So this is a long-standing thing. Although I think, Jennifer, correct me if I'm wrong here, post-TCJA, Republicans did provide some modest increase in funding for the IRS then, very modest. But I believe that was an acknowledgement that the IRS was going to have to implement the TCJA, and that was going to require a lot of resources. Is that your recollection? I think it sounds correct. And we may get into this later, but, you know, in addition to personnel and those sort of issues, you know, there are always technology concerns with what is happening at the IRS. And so with all the changes going through in TCGA, I think there certainly were concerns about their ability to really turn on a dime with some of these issues. Right. So it seemed like maybe there was some thawing in the Cold War between Republicans and the IRS, but maybe not. So let's just drill down a little bit more because you outlined some of the rationale that was stated by both the administration and then you said the Build Back Better legislation had a little bit more detail for why the IRS should get enhanced funding and how that money should be spent. So come back to that then. Remind us, what is the stated rationale for increasing IRS funding, especially substantially like uh, Build Back Better would have? Well, the stated rationale is to provide a robust and reliable stream of funding to enable the IRS to maintain its enforcement functions, expand and improve compliance programs, and help the agency increase its effectiveness and efficiency. The Treasury Department also indicated that it believes that the additional funding will yield significant increased revenues as a result of better IRS enforcement. So I think the possibility of raising money without increasing taxes comes into play. Not explicitly stated, I don't believe in the Green Book, but some Democrats have raised concerns that it's necessary to increase compliance and address the tax gap, the difference between the total amount of taxes owed and taxes paid on time, just given the need for there to be a perception of fairness in our income tax system, they need to increase compliance. And there's a view among some Democrats that the tax cap can be a big source of inequity the view being that you have a lot of lower income workers who get wage and salaries, whose income, virtually all of it's reported, whereas wealthier taxpayers can, in some cases, avoid 
a larger share of the taxes they owe through tax planning and because of more complicated arrangements. It's not W-2 type reporting, so it's easier for them to avoid taxes that they owe. So I think there's a lot of different reasons that factor into it, but the stated reasons were largely to provide a more robust stream of funding to enhance compliance and also do things like improve customer service. So to that point, I guess one question that jumps to my mind, I mean, I imagine others have others, but why now? Is there something unique or specific that is happening now? Or is it, do you think this is just the first real opportunity for a major priority for Democrats to actually get it done because they control the House, the Senate, and the White House and now have a chance to actually do this? What do you think? Well, that's a good question. I think it's probably a little bit of both. I do think that given that they're putting together big legislation and they do perceive this as a way revenue can be raised without directly increasing taxes on people, just saying, let's make sure we're collecting what people owe. And they see the IRS data on the tax gap that suggests there is a difference between what is owed and what's collected, that it is viewed as money that could be used. And there's a bill moving, so it's a good time. There's a bill they're trying to move, I guess I should say. So why? not try to use some of that money to pay for other things or reduce the deficit as the case may be. But I think there's also some who believe in an absolute sense, this is just the right thing to do. Again, we have a voluntary system and they believe that perception of fairness and making sure that people are paying what they owe, not just raises revenue, but it also does enhance the perception of the tax system and reduce inequities between people who are reporting their income. Again, many of whom may be just largely earning wage income and other taxpayers who may not be timely paying what they truly owe. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's a lot of things happening all at once. Part of it is the simple political reality that Democrats have the opportunity to do it, controlling the House, the Senate, and the White House. But it's, I think it's more than that. I think you're right. You know, I think the TCJA put a huge amount of pressure on the IRS to issue guidance and then to audit it, implement it. I mean, that it's really, of course, the TCJA, no matter what you think about it, added a substantial amount of complexity to the code. I think there's a very real fact that uh, the IRS has a large number, its workforce is older, right? And they've got a large number of people who are scheduled to retire in the next five to 10 years that will create a substantial shortfall in people. Systems have always been candidly laughable, right? The computer systems that they have. So I think all these things happening at once. And then the last one you mentioned, of course, is the tax gap, which has been a major priority for this administration. The Biden administration has really focused on the tax gap more than I recall any administration focusing on. So let's just pause on this for a moment. And Jennifer, to you, not sure everybody knows what the tax gap is. I mean, any of us that have been around the tax policy space, we've been talking about the tax gap forever. But remind us, what exactly is the tax gap? And then we can maybe try and unpack a little bit like why it's a priority for the administration and what the solutions are in solving the tax gap problem. But just start with what is the tax gap? Well, it certainly has been a priority for quite a while. Certainly, you hear about it a lot from Senator Wyden and his predecessor, Senator Baucus. I think it's generally a feeling that all the taxes that are owed are not being collected by the IRS. And that, as Carol really pointed out, maybe even before you look at raising taxes, maybe one needs to look at making sure that the taxes that are already in law are being actually paid and complied with. And so, you know, sort of this feeling that you know, the IRS should spend some more resources on compliance and making sure that the law is being complied with completely. I think the focus is in large part on pastor entities, small businesses, sole proprietorships, uh, high-income individuals is really a large part of the focus, I believe. One of the really interesting things about the tax gap to me is if we simply state it as 
the gap is the difference between taxes owed and taxes paid. One of the interesting things to me is when you ask different people why that gap exists, you get such wildly different answers as to what creates this gap between taxes owed and taxes paid, whether it's corporations, large U.S. multinationals. Some people will tell you it's that. Some people will tell you it's the pass-throughs community. Some people will tell you it's a wealthy individual. Some people will tell you it's the cash economy. This is part of the problem with the tax gap is oh, for years it's been all things to all people. You can solve it in any number of ways, but it's harder to know exactly what is driving the tax gap. So, Carol, let me ask a question about the tax gap then. What is the administration focused on? Coming back to then the rationale here is where they think perhaps the tax gap lies and where they would want the IRS to focus. Well, one of the things that they want it to make clear is that they want it to make sure that the additional funding um, would go to enforcement against those with the highest incomes rather than, than again, Americans with actual income of less than $400,000. So I suspect that they are saying, okay, we're not going to be targeting lower income individuals to pay more. We're focusing on higher end individuals. I have seen some people from the Treasury Department talking about the fact that, again, that people who earn less generally you know, are getting wages and salaries, and that income is all going to be reported. But they view there being another set of rules for wealthier taxpayers who get income from a lot of different sources, and it's not all stuff that's as readily apparent, and the IRS needs more tools and more training to go after those. So I think the focus that they have is on upper income people and perhaps corporations as well. I don't know. They, it's not really that granular, but there are comments that indicate that they're looking at wealthier individuals as being part of the tax gap, at least that they're focused on that they believe needs to be addressed. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And that it sort of helps solve, I think, in the administration's view, two problems at once, right? Which is closing this gap between what people owe and what people pay, simultaneously improving income inequality. In other words, that, you know, if you're a wealthy individual and you are not paying your fair share, well, we're going to get you to pay your fair share, right, to help fund the government. I also think less obvious, but clearly a subtext in all this is multinationals as well. And part of that goes into the whole pillar two Pillar one and pillar two, but pillar two and you know, the, the international changes that are part of Build Back Better are, are targeted at getting that as well. But I think we're getting all those things at once. All right. So here's my last question. And this comes back to the reality of enacting some of these proposals of funding the IRS and the practical implication of trying to close the tax gap. If it's true that funding the IRS, giving them additional funding allows them to collect more taxes, then you would think it would raise revenue to fund the IRS. So that's my question to you, Carol. Let me start with you and then Jennifer, any thoughts you have on this. But how then does Washington, the revenue estimators in Washington, whether that be JCT, CBO, or anybody else, how would they view the revenue impact of funding the IRS? Well, and let's go to the videotape, John, to use the <laughs> term. Let's look at how CBO, Congressional Budget Office, scored the increased spending for enforcement that was in the House passed version of the Build Back Better Act. You know, we mentioned- well, Let me stop you right there, Carol. If, if you're saying CBO, just to make sure yep. everybody understands why, why isn't this JCT, right? We're in the tax world. Why isn't the Joint Committee Taxation, their estimator scoring this, why instead is CBO doing this? 
Well, and that's exactly the first thing I was going to say is that what the House bill did was it proposed to provide an additional almost $80 billion in additional funding over the 10-year period. So that's spending. And CBO does estimates in increases in outlays or spending. It's a spending estimate. So increases in outlays and spending generally fall in CBO's purview, not JCT's, Joint Committee on Taxation. Not surprisingly, CBO on the official table of the budget effects of the bill, they estimated that the funding for tax enforcement activities provided by the bill would increase spending outlays by approximately $80 billion. That makes sense. And that spending is reflected in their total line of the estimated budget effects that they report for the official budget enforcement purposes. But as you know, there's more to the story. If you look at the very bottom of the official table, After you have the total estimates of changes in revenues and the estimated effect on the deficit, you'll see that there's basically a footnote with another $207 billion of projected additional revenue. And that line is referred to as a non-scored revenue change. Then you go to the notes to the table. And what the notes to the table explain is that CBO estimated that this increased spending on tax enforcement would result an estimated amount of additional revenues of $207 billion. There's also, by the way, a CBO letter to Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican, where he asked for further explanation of this estimate that explains that as a result, the net impact of the changes in tax enforcement activities would decrease the deficit by $127 billion over 10 years. So you had this $80 billion that's spent, but you have $207 billion of revenue that's raised. But the $207 billion revenue raised is in a footnote. It's not in the official score. So, John, hmm. I know what you want to ask is, why is the additional <laughs> revenue not in the official score, even though CBO did do an estimate right. of the amount of revenue the, raised? The official score shows just simply as an $80 billion loser, right? right? That's what's on the official scoreboard that counts, truly counts for tracking the cost of bills. You're right. It's an $80 billion loser. Well, so why is CBO willing to say, oh, but, you know, footnote, knowing that nobody reads the footnotes except people well, interested, saying, oh, but by the way, we really think in the real world it actually reduced the deficit. Why do they do it that way? Well, I will say that the footnote is pretty obvious because it said right below the (laughs) official score, there is this line that says non-scored revenue. And then you go to the notes to find out what what this $207 billion of non-scored revenue is. It is flagged on the official table. It's not truly buried. But why it's not in the official bottom line score of the bill is just because of the current budgetary scorekeeping guidelines that have been agreed to by the legislative and executive branches. Those are conventions that are intended to, among other things, promote consistent treatment over time among the scorekeepers. And one of the guidelines, there's a whole bunch of them, but one of the guidelines generally says that when scorekeepers estimate the cost of spending proposals, appropriations proposals like this one, they should exclude anticipated changes to revenues that may result if the proposal only increases or decreases discretionary funding, which was the case here. It's an $80 billion increase in funding. So under that guideline, you exclude from the official score for budget enforcement purposes, you exclude the anticipated changes to revenue. A couple little footnotes of my own here is that's just the current convention. It's possible conventions could be changed in the future. And the other thing is the official score of the bill 
that's for technical budget enforcement purposes. But what the score of the bill is can largely be in the eye of the beholder because different lawmakers can look at the bill and say, well, CBO says, even though it's not in this bottom line total, CBO does say there's additional revenue that's raised by this bill. Plus, when you come to things like budget reconciliation, the chair of the Senate Budget Committee has a lot of discretion in terms of how you look at various numbers. But mm-hmm. from a political perspective, people can certainly look at CBO. And as I said, there's a letter where CBO wrote to Senator Graham explaining all this. You can certainly point to this and say, okay, yeah, here's what the official table is, but this does provide some additional revenue as well. And so it does reduce the deficit relative to what the deficit effect is that's shown in the official table. Mm-hmm. Well, so, I mean, incredibly helpful, incredibly complicated, but helpful. So here's my last question. It's for you, Jennifer. I just did some quick math. According to CBO, for every dollar we give the IRS, we get $2.59 back. I think it was you that said this at one point. Well, then let's just give them a trillion. Or, you know, maybe a hundred billion and we can balance the budget or, you know, how widely viewed do you think is this idea or rational do you think this idea is that it's giving the IRS money? You talked earlier about Republicans with some skepticism here. What do you think their take is on funding the IRS as a net deficit reducer? I mean, I think on the whole, it makes sense. It's rational, obviously, if their job is to enforce a law and, and that would bring in revenue, that increasing in the enforcement would bring in more revenue, at least to some degree. I think at some point, obviously, that would max out. Republicans would have the question, what is the cost of that enforcement? Obviously, you could ring every last dollar that is owed out the taxpayer, but at what point is, one, that efficient? And two, you know, there's a lot of focus on compliance costs, and obviously, some of the tax cap may be ill-doers that basically cheating on their taxes, but my guess is quite a bit of it are legitimate mistakes. And to what extent would enforcement cause more compliance costs and maybe more trouble than it's worth? You know, I do have one question, which I find kind of related to this, which I find interesting. If I'm remembering correctly, the green book that the Biden administration originally put out actually projected that the money raised from increased IRS spending was significantly higher than what right. Carol just explained CBI. By a magnitude right. of four or five percent. Right. Like it was like more like four to one or five to one. Right. 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 So I'm just curious if either of you have any insight into that. I find that very interesting. I think it's just differing points of view as to A, how big the tax gap is, B, how hard it is to get at the tax gap, where the tax gap exists. Is it easy to get to or harder to or politically challenging? Like what if it's the cash economy? Are you really going to go after the plumber? who's getting paid cash to do, I mean, you know, you know what I mean? So I think it's just different people have different views. And by the way, Republicans don't think it's $2.59. They think it's barely above one. So you ask 20 people, you're going to get 20 different answers. I think is the answer to that, Jennifer. Jennifer, Carol, thank you very much. I thought that was very useful and I hope it was useful to all of you. That's all we have time for today. In closing, I just wanted to return to the issue of how IRS funding could play into negotiations around a reconciliation bill. One demand that Joe Manchin in particular has made several times is that any reconciliation bill would not only be fully paid for, but would go further, would also reduce the deficit. So let's just think about what that might mean for a second. Let's just say that a reconciliation bill includes, and look, I'm just making up a number here, but let's just say the bill would include a trillion dollars in spending. So what Manchin is proposing here is that 
Not only would Congress need to raise revenue through tax increases or other measures of $1 trillion to offset the cost of the spending, it would need to actually raise more revenue to reduce the deficit. That would then have the net number at the bottom of the revenue table being a positive number, right? The negative number be this being the spending, the positive numbers being the revenue raisers netting out to a positive number. Now, if you've been watching Congress for a while, you know that doesn't happen very often or ever, or well, at least not for a very long time. So it's fair to ask the question, could this actually happen now? Can we convince 50 senators, for example, and nearly every Democrat in the House that now is the time to raise taxes, but then not turn around and spend that money? Or said differently, that now is the time that this Congress should raise revenue to pay down past spending of this Congress or past spending above previous Congress. It's possible, of course, that they could agree to that. But look, it's not going to be easy, especially when so many spending priorities for so many Democrats are almost certainly going to be left out of a much more modest bill that we would likely see in July. Why take the pain of raising taxes if you don't get the benefit of spending the money, many may ask. So this takes us back to the question of IRS funding. Remember what Carol told us earlier, that even the Congressional Budget Office, CBO, believes that there is some revenue multiplier applied to every dollar of spending you give to the IRS. Now, it might not show up on a revenue table, but it's plausible that it's there somewhere in the ether. Now, we can argue how much, right? Do we get $5 of revenue for every dollar of spending we give to the IRS? Or do we just get two? Or do we get something less than that? But it's almost certainly something. So my point ultimately is this. Couldn't IRS funding then be the way to allow Congress to claim deficit reduction, even if the bill only nets to zero, according to the official revenue tables? Yeah, but you might ask, if it doesn't show up on a revenue table, then it doesn't actually count as deficit reduction, does it? Well, the answer to that is what you or what I think counts doesn't really matter. It only matters to those who hold the votes and what they think counts. Remember, we're not talking about applying gap principles to the accounting for this bill. If members of Congress believe that enhanced IRS funding reduces the deficit by some amount, then that might be enough to get the IRS the budget that it wants and satisfy the demand for deficit reduction at the same time. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. And please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.